All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're going to continue our time of worship by studying uh, the Bible together. Open it up to the New Testament book of Titus. You got it. So I hope this study through the book of Titus uh, is going to be encouraging for us and build us up in our faith. I hope it's going to be challenging for us. I think this morning might have some challenge as well. As you'll see once we read the, the passage, it is, um, it's a passage that can be divisive. It's a passage that could be really thorny, uh, landmines everywhere, as you'll see. I won't even have to comment. I'll just read the text, and you'll know what I'm talking about, right? So um, don't, let, let's not back away from hard passages like this. Let's lean into it um, and, and come receptive to what God is saying through his word, okay? All right, Titus chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading right there in verse 1. But you, Titus, he's talking to, you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husband, so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So there are two Massive challenges uh, to teaching a passage like this. And the first is our culture doesn't resonate much with, with much of what's here. Uh, so from the word go, just simply reading the text out loud, there are apprehensions about what's here. And second, which is not unrelated, second, some of the verses in this passage have been used to justify everything from slavery in colonial America to abusive marriages. And so it can be hard to see what's good here in this passage when so much of it has been used to endorse stuff that God hates. So that makes texts like this complicated as well. And I only say that just to acknowledge that there is very much an elephant in the room in passages like this. I'm not wanting to ignore that reality. And yet, somehow, simultaneously, um, I'd rather look at the text than the elephants uh, this morning. 
There, there's something more important for us to look at than the things that we might be distracted by. So I'm hoping that we'll make our way through this, eyes wide open, hearts receptive to what God is saying in and through this passage of the Bible. The purpose of this passage for the original audience, I think it becomes clearer when we just note the first two words of our passage. The first two words are, but you. Or if you have the ESV translation, the English Standard Version, it says, but as for you, Titus. So just notice that because that is instinctive. That, that points to some things that are going to be helpful to us. As for you, Titus, verse 1, you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. So in other words, our passage hinges on contrast. So that means we have to go back and look a little bit at chapter 1 to see what was the mess that was being made in chapter 1 that Paul would come over into chapter 2 and say, not you, not here. Chapter 2, you, Titus, as for you, do this other thing, not the thing that you were just, that Paul was just talking about. So we have to look back at chapter one for a second. Keep your Bibles open. Just look down. Paul talked about what the false teachers were like. And what were the false teachers like at the end of chapter one? They were the anti-Titus two teachers. Verse 10, here's what they were like, rebellious. The ESV translation puts it insubordinate. So in other words, pride is everywhere in the churches in Crete, and humility is MIA. So that's, that explains a little bit of why we're going where we're going in chapter 2. Verse 10, what are the false teachers like? They're empty talkers and deceivers. And he talks about how in verse 14, it's filled with myths and commands. So he says that this, especially the circumcision party, right? So there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of Old Testament commands that are being imposed on new covenant believers, but it's all talk. They talk obedience, but Paul says, check them out in verse 16, because they don't live it. They talk rules, but they don't keep the rules. They are, Paul's words, detestable and disobedient. They make a lot about obedience, but they don't do it themselves. They don't try it on themselves. Verse 11, here's what the false teachers were into. They were ruining entire households. Hence, in chapter 2, when he says, but as for you, Titus, here's what we need. We need teaching that puts households back together. We've got ruining households going on from false teachers in chapter 1. We need something different in chapter two, verse 15, they were defiled and unbelieving. So Titus, we need some teaching about properly motivated good works in the Christian faith. So Titus two starts by saying, as for you, Titus, here's task one that Paul gives him essentially in this chapter is undo the teaching diet that has turned Cretan Christianity into a dumpster fire. That's what chapter two is about undo the prevailing teaching diet that created the mess that we saw in chapter one and start building and planting something different. Paul is telling them in this passage what ordinary Christianity looks like on the island of Crete. Titus 2 isn't flashy. Titus 2 isn't so kind of spiritually awesome that it makes, it's gonna make the evening news in Crete. But from another viewpoint, let's come to the present moment in which we live right now. From another viewpoint, wouldn't it be nice to have a Christianity that is a little bit less newsworthy? 
If, if boring but faithful is the alternative to public scandal, I'll take boring all day. Make Christianity boring again. I would buy that t-shirt. I, I, would, I would wear that. Titus 2, in, in essence, is that kind of idea. Ordinary Christianity, bring it home. Don't make a spectacle of it. Don't be performative about it. Bring it home. Be faithful. Be humble. Be godly. Do good works. Love people well. Let's recover that, right? Paul says that's how the false teachers roll. But as for you, Titus, I want you to show unbelieving Crete that point number one, normal matters. <laughs> normal matters. This, uh, the sermon title I, I chose this morning is borrowed from a, a great book by Tish Harrison Warren called Liturgy of the Ordinary. The subtitle is Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. And here are the chapter headings. Chapter one, waking. Two, making the bed. Three, brushing teeth. Four, losing keys. Five, eating leftovers. Six, fighting with my husband. Second, seven, checking email. Eight, sitting in traffic. Nine, calling a friend. 10, drinking tea, 11, sleeping. And it's a really refreshing book because she shows how God interacts with your normal schedule, your everyday life. God invades our everyday, normal, not newsworthy lives. And here's, here Paul's talking about things as fundamental and basic and ordinary as how to get old for the glory of God how to get old, right? Paul tells Titus to uh, raise up older men and older women and get them teaching in the church. So those, here's the point, those who are mature in life and mature in faith are to teach others. Again, he mentions, you see there in your passage, he mentions older men, he mentions older women. I, I did some research on what... Um, the current thinking in first century Greco-Roman culture, what their current thinking was about how, what age defined whether you were old, uh, and you don't want to know. Uh, uh, you don't want to know that it's 50. Um, it is 50, uh, sorry. I'm 48, so I'm going to milk that for two years. Uh, it, it feels so good to be young this morning. <laughs> Paul wants older, some of you older men and women here, Paul, Paul wants them living respectable lives, setting a good example, not just teaching and running their mouths, but backing up sound teaching with sound living, godly, goodness, virtuous living. He, he wants older men and women in the church to be the church's sages, to... Uh, I use this, uh, this metaphor came to mind in a conversation for whatever reason this week I was talking to somebody and I used a, a, refer, a cultural reference that dated me. Some of you might know this. Where um, older people are supposed to have an E.F. Hutton effect on the church, right? So if you're laughing, you're an older man or an older woman, right? Uh, E.F. Hutton was this old commercial where it says, if E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Right, that Paul is saying, get the older men and women who have more life experience and more maturity and faith, get them talking and, and urge the church, the younger brothers and sisters to listen, to learn from their wisdom. He talks about faith, love, and endurance. So often the, the threefold categories are faith, hope, 
and love. But other times in the New Testament, the hope one is substituted by endurance, and that's what he does here. Faith, endurance, and love. So he wants older men and women in the church to be firm in the faith. There's your application point already. Are you firm in the faith? Are you aspiring, continuing, persevering so that you would be more and more holding fast in trusting in Jesus Christ? Firm in the faith. They have loving relationships. So they're not just, it's not just faith, but it's faith and love. Faith manifested in their actions toward other people. Seeking to do them good and to help them to encourage them, and then endurance. So there's, there's, a, there's a grit about the older generation in the church at Crete that Paul is looking for. There's a resiliency. Ask them what they've been through and sit there and listen to the stories of how God has held them up and learn something about what it means to endure. We are, um, we are blessed with a generationally diverse church what I call the gift of gray. Um, we, we have it, and I'm so grateful for it. Um, sometimes I'll talk with other pastors in the city who are church planters, and um, they're, the Lord is sending them lots of young people and young families, and they're like, it's awesome, but we need some older people as well. We need the, what I call the gift of gray, right? And they would give their left arm for some of our legacy seniors uh, to move over to their church, but they can't have you because you're our old people. Like, uh, Titus 2 says, you're here, go ahead and open your mouth and do that thing that you do. Bring the gift of gray to the body of Christ. Seriously, either Jesus, it's gonna go one of two ways. Either Jesus is gonna take us out of this world and bring us home, which would be glorious, That's, that's a glorious option, or we're going to get old. And Paul is out here saying, if you're going to get old, you might as well do it for God's glory and the church is good. Older brothers and sisters, um, let's not worship the fountain of youth. Let's help the youth find a better fountain. The fountain of wisdom. The fountain of knowledge. The fountain of truth. the, The... the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, the fountain of gospel grace. Let's help the youth find a better fountain. How to get old, how to be married with kids. Talk about normal, talk about ordinary. You just can't get more normal and ordinary than these kinds of things. This chapter follows a uh, conventional practice in Greco-Roman culture that is called the household code. Household codes were written by all kinds of Greek and Roman philosophers. Aristotle and Josephus and Philo and a number of them, they would write these household codes and it basically just says, here's how to run the house. And it was always written to the man. It was only written to the man of the house and it talked about how the man of the house relates to the the servants and, and his wife and his children and so forth. So Paul is following the kind of syntax and structures that were very well known, household codes, formal and detailed instructions about what role everyone played in the house because for them, first century uh, Greco-Roman culture, the health of society depended on the health of the home. And at this point, there would be commonality between that particular um, concern and the Christian concern. Very much, we read a Bible that wants to establish 
healthy homes, healthy marriages, healthy parenting, godliness in the home, goodness and love in the home. So Christian faith holds this as a conviction that family is a God-ordained pillar for the flourishing of society. Again, Aristotle wrote a household code. He was always focused on the man, his relationship with the slaves or wife and children. Paul is using this same device, but with a gospel remix. So there, there are certain things that you'll see that are obviously a hat tip to the way that it's done, the household codes are done. But then there are points where Aristotle zigs and Paul zags, where there is kind of winsome gospel subversion that's in play here in this remix, this gospel remix of household codes. A godly home is characterized by dignity, diligence, kindness, and humility. And that's to kind of bundle some of the things that are here. If you compare the New Testament household codes, by the way, this is not the only one. There are a number of places in the New Testament that talk about structure in the home and order and roles in the home and so forth. So if you compare New Testament household codes here and elsewhere to the Greek and Roman philosopher household codes, you can see this winsome yet subversive thing. For example, in Aristotle, the man rules and the wife, child, and slave are his inferiors. So that, you, I'll show you my homework here. This is Aristotle. The male by nature is superior and the female inferior. The one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. So it's not just in the home. Men rule and women are inferior, according to Aristotle. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of of a husband. But in the New Testament, Children are urged, so New Testament household codes, children are urged not simply to obey the father. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Hmm, didn't expect that. That's different than what we hear out here in the Greco-Roman first century household code world. Aristotle didn't in any way bridle the authority of the man of the house, but Peter, the apostle, would say, husbands, if you don't walk with your wife in an understanding way, when you pray, God will close his ears. He won't listen to your prayers if you're mistreating your wife. New Testament household codes don't just call children to obey their parents in the Lord for this is right, but they put They put the husband on the hook, the dad on the hook, and they say, for example, in Ephesians chapter six, fathers, do not. You don't get to provoke your children to anger. You don't just have carte blanche. There's a way to do this and there's a way not to do this. Pagan household codes displayed no reciprocity in the husband-wife relationship. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, which is really surprising and shocking, the wife's body doesn't belong to her but to her husband, no shock there, but reciprocity. He says, the husband's body doesn't belong to him but belongs to his wife. Well, there's reciprocity we weren't expecting. We expected the husband to to get to do what he wants to do in the house, but we didn't expect him to say the wife also. Reciprocity, it's interesting. We read Titus chapter two, don't lose sight of the surprising picture of what Christian households 
look like? Paul tells older women to do something really surprising. Teach. If you're Titus and you're reading this letter addressed to you, a teacher, you say, I thought that was my job. I thought I'm the teacher. And yet Paul is saying, Titus, I'm talking to you about finding older women and them teaching. Get them talking. Get them sharing their wisdom, principles, truths, knowledge. Paul doesn't tell Titus how to teach younger women. He tells Titus to find older women to do it. We, uh, in our house, we saw this in a really small way on Friday. So Friday night, uh, me and, and my son Will, we're home alone, and, uh, and Paul is out. Um, and she's off somewhere because a, a group of women who are in a church that doesn't have the gift of gray, and they invited Paula to come and talk to their young women about uh, the Lord and what it means to be a follower of Jesus as a woman. And she went, and she came back a few hours later, and... Um, as per usual, my wife is not like a walk in the room and say, man, that, that was, I just brought some serious awesomeness to that room full of women. That, that would not be, it was very kind of, if I hadn't asked, she just would have said, it was really good, you know, or it was a good time, or I enjoyed meeting them, or that would be what, what she would say. But I promise you, my wife rocked Friday night. She won't say it that way. She never said it that way. But that's, I know that's how it went down. Because she has wisdom and they were in the room and they asked for it and she would have brought it, right? So there's, there's this way of getting old, there's this way of, of teaching and then, and then the next point, talk about normal, how to respond to problems at work. I realize there's a danger uh, of rebranding what's called slavery here as work. And so let me bring in um, theologian and historian Mark Dever, he writes this about this passage. It's helpful to realize that when the New Testament talks about slaves, it is not talking about the racially discriminating slavery America practiced for nearly three centuries. It is talking about a kind of slavery that is surely worse than what we think of as employment, but which is probably closer to our idea of employment than to our idea of slavery. If people were in debt and couldn't pay their debts, they would sell themselves into slavery so that they could work and gain money and then free themselves from both debt and slavery. So it was, it was just a different scenario as well. The slavery in view wasn't racially discriminating, but it wasn't the ideal either. And you can pick up on that anytime you read in the New Testament about what slavery was like. Paul... Um, often wrote to people in bad situations instructing them how to live in a fallen world. How to live in bad situations. In other words, you can't hit a switch and make that issue go away in first century Greco-Roman culture. So how do you live in it without being a revolutionary that tries to overthrow it? Next thing you know, now we're known as, as subversives in the culture and that becomes the main thing that we're known for rather than the gospel. So here again, take in the whole of the New Testament and what does Paul say to slaves in 1 Corinthians chapter seven? He says, were you called while a slave? That is, were you saved? Were you called to faith in Jesus while you were a slave? Don't let it concern you. Note this, but if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. Um, so Christian slaves 
on the island of Crete were in a unique position. We know that because, that because of the gospel, they were treated as equals. Read the book of Philemon. It's, it's about this. So because of the gospel, they were treated as equals in, in Paul's communities, right? However, there was a danger that they would use that equality as license to disrespect their masters and then would become associated with slave rebellions, which were happening all over Rome, which would then further discredit the Christian message. So you can see Paul is negotiating a very fine line here. He believes that the gospel about Jesus needs to prove its redemptive power in the public square if it's really going to transform Cretan culture. And that's not going to happen through social upheaval. That's why he emphasizes it the way he does here. The gospel is adorned by faithfulness in the small things and integrity on the job. So if enough hands go up, I'm gonna ask for a show of hands. If enough hands go up, um, nobody will be embarrassed. So show of hands, how many of you have experienced frustration with a supervisor at work? Okay. Brook Hill staff members keeping it real out here uh, this morning. <laughs> uh, making note. Uh, <laughs> so there's a category, let me just say this just to be clear. There's a category for leaving your workplace because you've been dehumanized. Let me just add that caveat, happily add that caveat. If you're being de dehumanized or abusive, toxic culture, right? So if that's you, uh, th then I'm not talking to you in this particular moment, right? Don't hear me coming at you in this moment. I'm talking like this text is talking, I believe, to people who experience hardships, frustrations, indignities, and temptations of working at any organization in a world that's fallen, any organization where the people above you are flawed or are sinners, which pretty much gets all of them, right? Paul is saying, here's some liturgical acts of worship for your ordinary work day. Don't steal. Don't steal money. Don't steal time. Don't talk back. Be well-pleasing. Doesn't mean obey any and every directive, even if it's unethical. There, there are words for that in the New Testament. There are caveats built in uh, ways for us to account for that kind of situation, right? So don't obey any directive if it's unethical. That being the exception, Paul's missional concern comes through three times. He says, live in this way, look, verse five, so that God's word will not be slandered. It's about mission. Live in this way, verse eight, so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Live in this way, verse 10, so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. So, the point is, the normal things of a beautiful marriage and a self-controlled young person and a hardworking employee will adorn the message, will make the gospel that much more compelling, that much more credible, will create less white noise in the background while we're trying to win the world than otherwise. Come at it the other way. Paul doesn't want rumors running around Crete that say, you know, these Christians, they're okay neighbors, but don't make the mistake of hiring one. Ordinary Christianity matters. It matters how we show up at the office. So normal matters and two, gospel power. Gospel power. Here's what I love about this text is it, um, 
it begins with imperatives and it ends with indicatives. It, it ends with the motivation for why we live the way that we live in the normal areas of life. God does for us in the gospel what we could never do for ourselves. And that's, that's where Paul finishes this chapter. Last thing on earth I want to do on Sunday morning is use shame as a tool to get your Christian life in gear. Shame is bad fuel. It'll burn your engine up. Grace is great fuel. And that's where Paul ends. He says, let me put the right stuff in your tank so the thing can run. Grace is how the tank runs. Paul isn't just issuing commands. Why? Because God is not a moralist. God is not a father who thunders from on high and leaves his children wilting under his displeasure and terrified to come near. That is not the story we're living in. Praise God. That's not the story we're living in. If, if we had to choose just one word that captures the entire essence of the Christian faith, it would be grace. That's easy. That's not hard. The one word is grace. And that's what Paul is riffing on here at the end. For the grace, verse 11, of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then he talks about in verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good work. Grace is the fuel of godliness. Becomes so evident here at the end of this passage. Grace is the fuel of godliness. Paul says, I want to give you motivation to do normal but sometimes hard things. Here's the motivation. Grace appeared. And that obviously is a metaphor. Grace didn't appear. Who appeared? Jesus appeared. Jesus is being renamed what? Grace, the appearance of Jesus Christ. That, that's a reference to Christmas. That's a reference to Bethlehem. Angels singing over the night sky in Bethlehem is, Paul says, that was grace on planet earth. Grace being born. Grace appeared. You, you can't weigh grace in pounds. Technically, there's no such thing as grace. There is God who is gracious. There is God and there is your broken and sinful condition. And the kindness that's in the heart of God, the kindness that led Jesus to die, the kindness that led Jesus to be pinned to Roman lumber in the place of sinners so that he could absorb the punishment that we are due, that thing is what the Bible calls grace. And that fuels the whole of the Christian life. In the movie Superman, uh, Kal-El is more powerful than other Kryptonians because his body grew and developed under the influence of the yellow sun in Earth's atmosphere. And the sun wasn't intending necessarily to make Kal-El stronger. It's just doing its thing, being a giant ball of fire. And while it's doing its thing, it so happens that the longer Superman feels the yellow sun on his skin, the more powerful he becomes. And in the analogy, the yellow ball of fire is the gospel. <laughs> and you feel that gospel on your skin day in and day out. You preach that gospel to yourself every morning and you are getting stronger. It is motivating you to godliness. There is this other sun the Christian is meant to live 
under. You and me remembering what Christ has done for us will make you strong. It'll give you endurance. So grace is the fuel of godliness and glory is the fuel of endurance. You see how Paul, in verse 11, he begins with the appearance of grace and then he ends, in verse 13, with the appearance of glory. Two appearances, and we live right between them. We live between the appearance of grace in Bethlehem and the appearance of glory when Jesus breaks through the eastern skies. That's the Christian lives in light of those two things. They fuel our life of faith. So Paul, in this way, here at the close of our passage, he puts eternal matters of future glory right next to normal matters. We live our normal lives between the appearance of grace in the manger and the appearing of glory when Christ returns. Let me just ask you, is your pursuit of godliness fueled by grace? Is your endurance fueled by future glory? I love that we have a Bible that connects the dots between the gospel and the sales floor, between the mission and the burp cloth. Right. So home life, domestic affairs, work life, getting older, it's, it's all connected here to the life of the Christian, motivated by grace toward future glory. Some of us are um, exhausted because we think our lives need to be more extraordinary than they are. And then enter a household code in Titus 2 in which God tells us normal matters, grace is ours, and glory is coming. <laughs>